Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. Innova Asset Management is a boutique portfolio manager that has been managing client portfolios since 2010. Innova believe in constructing portfolios that work with investor behaviour rather than against it. This is why they have built risk-focused portfolio solutions that support a goals-based advice framework. Innova's focus on risk management and their active approach to asset allocation has been designed to work through all market cycles, which was evident in 2020 when they were able to participate in the market rebound while also protecting capital on the downside. Hello and welcome to this topics series on behavioural investing where we take a deep dive into client and advisor decision making. My name is Fraser Jack and in this series we hear from a fantastic panel of speakers. First up is award winning financial advisor from Brisbane, Patricia Garcia, along with Dr Catherine Hunt, a lecturer in financial planning at Griffith University. Then we have David Bell, executive director, academic and researcher at the Conexus Institute along with Dan Miles, Managing Director and Co-Chief Investment Officer from Innova Asset Management. All of these speakers bring a unique perspective to the conversation. This is the first podcast in the series of five. In this episode, we dive into the different behavioral biases in investment decisions, from recognizing them to discussing them with your clients. In episode two, we cover goals-based investing. Uh, In episode three, we tackle values-based decision-making. Episode four is all about client risk profiling and advisor investment philosophies. And rounding out the series, we take on the not-so-modern portfolio theory, discussing traditional strategic asset allocation, or SAA, versus dynamic or risk-defined portfolios. But stay tuned now as we lean into recognizing different behavioral biases. Thank you, everybody, for joining us here today. I'm speaking with Catherine and Patricia. Thank you both for joining me. And we are talking about uh, behavioral biases in investment decisions and and decisions in general. Uh, Thank you both for joining me. Catherine, as we approach the subject, what are your initial thoughts? There is so much research on our inability to use our own brains, basically. So there's a heap of research on judges for For example, they are professional decision makers. That is their job. They make decisions all day. They cannot make good decisions. So, for example, they have these parole parole board meetings. Um, It's binary decision. You're either going to get parole or not. And in the hour before lunch, how many people do you think get parole? Yeah, no one. No one gets parole. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) no one? No one. And they've got, they've got this data over hundreds of thousands of instances because it's a binary decision and it's, a, it's in every country as well. So there's a heap of data on it and it's all recorded. So not no one, obviously. That's a bit extreme for comic effect. Um, but then after lunch, who, goes, who gets parole? Oh, everyone. Everyone gets parole because they've got a full tummy. They've had a beer Excellent. over lunch. They're ready. They're good to go. And these are professional decision makers. So... We, we are useless at using our own brains, no matter how educated we are. And I mean, people like Patricia and you, you're so highly educated, so experienced. And probably you think, huh, I'm pretty good at making decisions and using my own brain though. But if we look at the data as a whole, it looks like, no, none of us are really that good at all. <laughs> so super interesting context. I've always had this idea that, um, you know, we make, we make emotional decisions and, you know, log- the logic doesn't come into it. But one of the things I haven't really considered is, is whether you're hungry or not. So that's, a, that's an interesting part of the conversation. Uh, Patricia, from, a, from a, a bias point of view, obviously clients come into your office with predeceased um, ideas around what they might be doing. Oh, yeah, all the time. Uh, we all have them. Uh, like Catherine said, uh, I have them, you have them, we all have them. Um, I think it's um, why we need professional people around us helping us make decisions is because those professional people have the skills and the ability to 
make better decisions by taking the emotion out of it. So um, even when I'm helping clients make tough decisions, it's tough for me, even though it's not my life, you know, they just, they're my clients. And of course I have their best interests at heart, uh, but it can sometimes be tough. It's not always black and white, but I can be a lot more logical uh, and I can take the emotion out of it a lot better than they can. Um, so that's our job. Um, you know, behavioral yeah. finance is all about, trying to get to know clients and trying to uh, pinpoint uh, where their, um, um, I guess, uh, pain points are and, and, and where you think that there will be more bias and trying to remind them of uh, different things that they've done in the past uh, that perhaps didn't turn out as well as they thought um, uh, to help them make better decisions along the way. Catherine, one of the things that Patricia mentioned there was around uh, when clients um, you know, helping clients make decisions is that sort of not just about um, logical information and you know what's in their best interest, but the fact that uh, that advice can come at this from a disassociated state. You know, they're not actually in the in the head of the person who's um, they're giving advice to. Exactly, exactly. It's exactly as Patricia said. The power of being detached in a way. So on the one hand. Someone like Patricia is so invested in her clients getting the best outcome. But on the other hand, she can take a couple of steps back, look at it from a strategic perspective, look at the client's nuances and their own issues, hang-ups, historical challenges that they've overcome and the whole weight of the emotional situation there. And so she can help the client to navigate their own emotional problems, I suppose, around decision-making. So that having that third party available to help you with decisions is one of the main reasons I think that that people actually seek a financial advisor to help them with something that in a in a way they might be able to do it themselves if they had the self control and the the attention to detail and the ability to detach and they can't because we can't because we're human. Yeah, it's interesting. Just um, yesterday, I had um, a meeting with a client um, and he called and he said. Um, Oh, uh, I've got an investment opportunity. Um, my daughter is going to university and we're going to potentially get some benefits from uh, DVA. So he, um, he used to be in the army, but regardless, the point was he thought, oh, the, the rent will be free. So we should definitely buy a property for her because she'll then give us the rent. And I, um, and he was convinced that that was a great decision. And I, all I had to do was step back and do the numbers. And I said, it doesn't matter if it's coming from her or a third party. It's still coming from a third party. And we worked through it. And he's like, oh, I can't believe that. Um, you know, uh, he was a bias towards wanting to help his daughter uh, and couldn't even consider simple mathematics of money, money out. Are you positively geared or negatively geared? Um, so that's just a simple example of something that can be so simple that anyone can do. Um, that um, you know, a smart person um, didn't think to walk through those steps because they were emotionally biased towards helping their, you know, that child. Yeah, this is an interesting point, isn't it? It's about that that emotional bias could um, could be uh, financially not in the client's best interest, but yet still be exactly what they want to do. Um, you know, which might be in their emotional interest or, or 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 the thing that they get the most joy or pleasure out of uh, of doing. What are your thoughts, Catherine? Yes, as we know, best interest duty um, actually requires us to do what's in the best interest of the client regardless of what the client wants. <laughs> so that interplay is really interesting because often what the client wants, you know, they might want to give 90% of their wealth away and we might be able to quantify and say, look, that's probably not a good idea because you won't have enough then to even pay your rent. We have to work towards the client's goals on the one hand, but on the other hand, their goals might not be what really is the best thing for them. So it's a it's a complicated scenario when what they want is or what they say they want kind of requires a little bit of discussion, just like how you said before, Patricia, about um, discussing them with them and really doing the goal exploration. Okay, so this is what you want and why do you want that? Oh, great. Okay, let's achieve that same outcome on a different path. Yeah, and um, actually, that's how I finished off with this client. Uh, in this case, they could afford to do it. And I said, look, so mathematically, you know, this is how it would play out from a cash flow perspective. Uh, but um, are you doing it because of it's because of it being an investment opportunity, which is how you started this conversation? Or are you doing it as a lifestyle decision to help your daughter? That's a different 
discussion. Uh, so, you know, go away and think about that. And uh, that's how we um, ended the conversation. So it's interesting to see how just in, the, you know, 15 minutes you can uh, go from, no, this is a great investment to actually, is it a good investment? What, why do I actually want it? Uh, and help them think through that. Yeah, so Catherine, I was thinking also, um, you know, what are some of the main biases that uh, that humans go through when obviously their past, their their history, the, anything that scarred them in the past often is one of the main things that come up. Um, but from a, you know, consumer point of view or an, even an advisor point of view, what, what are some of the things that do, you know, jump out as being clear behavioural biases? So a if you have a look at the list of behavioral biases, it's almost like they have a term for every decision you've ever made. Even if it's a unique decision and you think you've only ever made that decision once, there's a term for it. So there's so many of these biases that these economists have been studying. Um, but in general, anything where you're using your emotion to make decisions become can become a behavioral bias, which is, it kind of sounds like it's a bad thing, but if we didn't use our emotion to make decisions. Our brain, our tiny little primate brain would be so overloaded. We'd be on the floor in a coma. Like we cannot process all of the information that we have available. Even for the 10,000 decisions we make every day, we can't do that consciously. Our brains are too small. So we need to use the emotion and it's just the fastest path for decision-making. So any any historical um, event. It can be something mundane, like you're, you're walking through a shopping center and on the screen you see the, the tagline of a news event that can prime you for something. So the types of behavioral biases, cognitive biases that come up are just everywhere, basically, especially in decision-making, um, for in financial decision-making. So like my favorite ones include sunk costs. That's probably one of my favorite ones, one of the logical fallacies, because it's it's kind of easier to, to pull apart and quantify in a way. But there's so many, it, like confirmation bias is obviously a very famous one um, that we all suffer from. And a great example with that is Bitcoin because we all have a perspective on it and we basically all use new information and uh, reinterpret the new information to confirm whatever we already thought about Bitcoin. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds exactly how social media platforms are working anyway. They'll, uh, they'll work out what you like to hear and give you more of it. Exactly. Patricia, what are you seeing as the main sort of uh, biases that from clients or even advisors? Um, I think um, it's important for advisors to recognize their own biases um, and potentially um, attract the clients that meet those biases in a way. Um, so a simple example may be, um, you know, active versus passive investment philosophies. Um, uh, some advisors can have a strong preference one way or another, uh, but it's about being really clear about that um, and making that clear to uh, our clients when we're dealing with them uh, to make sure that it suits them because there is no right or wrong. Um, it's a matter of preference and, and education, a range of, of different things. Um, but if you're not transparent about that and all you're doing is constantly um, influencing clients towards the same outcomes, uh, that can be something that um, we, you know, as advisors could be um, guilty of. Um, so we need to be conscious of that, I think. Um, from a client's perspective, uh, some of the big biases that um, I see are around, um, uh, you know, the, the most common one is you want to continue investing and buy when things are going up and you want to sell when things are going down. Um, you know, when markets are volatile, oh, you know, this is not such a great investment. And then markets really, oh, no, I don't want to sell anymore. They wanted to sell last year. And then now markets have gone up, so they, they're going to get more for more money than they did before. And now they don't want to sell anymore. So uh, for me, it's always about um, what I always say to clients is we need to decide what the plan is, uh, what the strategy is, what the right investment options are. And then you have to stick to the plan unless something significant changes because short-term volatility shouldn't influence that. It's a, it's a long-term plan. Um, if your goals change and if your uh, behavior actually significantly changes and you're, then perhaps something needs to change. Apart from that, we need to um, do those things before the volatility happens so that you make the right decisions when the volatility actually, uh, when you're actually in the midst of that. That's really great that you have those strategies. 
So I can imagine that navigating the client's biases must be almost impossible, Patricia, because especially, okay, at the moment, obviously, it's primed the market volatility, but navigating that amongst the fact that they're they're actually going to be worried at some point. They're going to see their portfolio value and think, what is going on here? They're going to be severely affected by these the biases, but also just about their um, their personal risk aversion, um, loss aversion in particular. So how do you actually manage that? Like surely when you say to them, okay, we're just going to stick to the plan and we're going to manage this before the volatility comes. There's more to it than that, surely. <laughs> yeah, that's no, a great question. Um, I think I'm really fortunate that uh, my entire career as an advisor uh, has been around uh, uh, advisors and clients that don't focus on investment returns and it's always been around goals. Uh, and also uh, starting my career right after or in the midst of the GFC, uh, the global financial crisis. So I lived through that already and I saw their behavior. And um, I think one of the greatest things that I've learned from it that I do with my clients is that from the moment I meet them, I tell them your portfolio will drop significantly one day. We just don't know what that when that day will be. Um, so we just need to set it up for that to happen. And then I try to use um, reverse psychology in a way, not reverse psychology, but um, for example, if they're wealth creators to say, um, instead of not wanting that, that's what you want. You know, you're buying, that's what you want. We want market volatility, that's what we want. And then for retirees, is saying it's going to happen. That's why we're going to have to give up on some returns and have some defensive assets. You know, I talk about sequencing risk and I show them how chasing high returns will actually lead to lower returns in, in, in actual returns that they're going to experience, which is what matters is on market returns is their returns. And I go through that education process and I uh, preempt, you know, we preempt all of that. So when it happens, we go, oh, that's okay. We've got the, that bucket for, for that. We can ride it out. Um, and that's what, you know, you have to constantly remind them of that. And I remind them of that at every meeting. So every meeting we say, we don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to happen. So they, they get really um, used to that. I really love the pre-framing of, you know, that dip in the market and understanding that that, you know, is going to happen. We know it's going to happen, uh, but that when it does happen, they go, oh, it just also cements the fact that, oh, you told me that was going to happen. So it even deepens the relationship that they have with you. Um, I want to go back a little bit to something that you mentioned earlier was around the, the advisor's understanding what their own experience is um, and turning that into a business or investment philosophy or whatever it might be and understanding that they have been through like exactly the same as your experience your experience has been you've been through the GFC and now you know these things but to harness those opportunities to build that into their business as a you know a business philosophy and something that you know they can highlight rather than just sort of you know skirt around what are your thoughts Catherine? Mm, something that does kind of uh, it does worry me a little bit is when I come across advisors that are, oh, no, it's fine. It'll be fine. They will be fine when the market volatility comes. And you know they haven't talked to their clients ahead of time like Patricia has. So being upfront and really transparent about that, I think that's so important. Patricia, what are your thoughts on the idea of, you know, experience, the experience you've been through forming part of, you know, your investment or business philosophy around and, and communicating that to your clients before they come in? Um, yeah, um, I personally don't have a strong view, for example, in relation to passive or active. Um, I go through both with clients. Um, so in that sense, I guess it's easier for me because I don't feel I'm, I'm, I'm significantly biased in that um, way. Um, but I explain the differences to them and the fact that you can also do both. And, um, and then we, that's how we help them build portfolios. The, the difficulty I think is actually, uh, how much detail do you give clients? Um, you know, getting a client on board, like you are already literally giving them a, uh, a master's degree in, in financial planning in, in, you know, three months, uh, over four meetings. Um, it's actually quite difficult to, to cover everything off. And it's also, um, it can be overwhelming, um, if you, if you give too much information. So I think the uh, key is to actually, uh, give the really important information. 
and keep educating along the way and reviewing along the way uh, and giving a bit more every time and, 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 and essentially trying to determine what, what do they need to know to drive the car. They don't need to know the engine. Um, so that's how I approach it. Um, but, um, yeah, with, with our business, we don't have a, a strong philosophy around, uh, active versus passive. Um, but I discuss different options with clients and help them build different portfolios. Um, and I try to, to remind myself of my own biases as well. Um, and, um, try to make sure that I'm addressing it twice as much when I'm, when I think I'm in that space. Um, just to make sure I'm not potentially influencing them um, in a way that they wouldn't normally um, yeah, be influenced yet. Yeah, well said. Uh, and Catherine, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was just the, the bias around now versus later. You know, uh, the idea, the whole idea of superannuation was, you know, p- putting money away, but people never really engaged with it. We always think about the now. It's very hard to, to put the, um, put you know, to prioritise later over now. Tell us, what, what are your thoughts on this bias? People have uh, different levels of their, basically their present bias is what we call it in the research, so the bias towards the present. And we're all a little bit different. It's a, They haven't really figured out why we're all different. But some of us are very focused on now and some people are focused on later. And it's really one of the underlying biases with regards to anything financial, isn't it? Because no success happens today, tomorrow, or the next day even. You have to have the vision. You have to have the five, 10-year vision for anything, for, for building a business, building a career, investing, achieving goals. It doesn't matter what it is. You have to have the long-term vision. And we're just not very good at it, basically. Most of us have a very strong bias towards the present. And we just we have a simple way of testing present bias as well. So we, we say to them, uh, we have like a, a list of numbers, basically, and tick what you would prefer. $50 today or $80 tomorrow. And, of course, everyone picks the $80 tomorrow. Okay, $50 today, $80 next week. Most people still pick $80 next week. Move it down to six months, though, $50 today or $80 in six months, and you'll start to see people choosing $50 today. So that's at the point at which people shift how long is it in the, into the future that you're going to start prioritizing today? That's the point that we um, as academics are interested in, the point of the shift of, no, that's too long. I'm not going to wait six months for $30 on $50 return. So that's present bias. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yep. Um, I, I know how to recognize that in my clients straight away, the, the, especially the ones that are at the extreme ends. Um, I, you know, as you're speaking, I'm like, oh yeah, these clients will definitely be the today client or these clients is definitely the tomorrow client. And, um, I think my job as an advisor is to help bring them back a bit more balanced. So, um, I, I can, uh, I'm thinking of two people right now and, you know, one of them is like, nah, nothing will ever happen to me and I'm going to die young and I want to enjoy today. And I keep like, you know, saying, oh, actually, you know, you're probably going to live long. And, you know, I keep trying to get them to understand it. Actually, after many, many years, they have changed significantly. It's quite interesting to see the shift, how, how different he is today to what he was, um, eight years ago now when he started with us. Um, and then I've got another client that, um, just wants spend and you, you do like, what are you, you know, who are you leaving all this money to? And, uh, the wife might complain that she wants a few extra things and he's just like really, you know, wants to save and that's his personality. Uh, and then again, I keep reminding them, oh, I actually can afford to spend a bit more. And this is why. And we go through that and it's like slowly you might see them spend a little bit more. Uh, so it's interesting to see, um, the differences. And I think our role is just to, make sure that we're being really transparent with them of the impact of those decisions um, and keep reminding them and educating them so they can potentially um, change slightly um, once they get more educated and more comfortable. Yeah, Patricia, one of the hard things has always been managing different personalities in a, in a couple in that respect, often that it's not spoken about at home and then they come into the office and you're asking questions that are well, difficult to, to, to articulate and then they find out that they're on different uh, pages with those particular things. How do you go about from a practice point of view um, having those conversations with people that have different points of view? 
Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think um, I haven't ever had something where you really just had to go, oh, you know, I can't help you or this is too contradictory that um, uh, if I if we go this way, uh, I'm helping you, but if we go that way, I'm helping her, let's say. So I can't really help any of you because that's uh, not going to be in both of your best interests. But um, I think in my experience, it, um, it's just being a matter of, just ha- helping them have that discussion at that point in time and then helping them, you know, sometimes they, they might, okay, we'll go home and we'll talk about it, we'll come back to you and they come back with what they actually want after they thought about it more. Uh, helping them understand, you know, each other's point of, points of view um, and the impact of, you know, if we do what um, he wants versus what she wants, this is the impact, this is the outcome, this is the, these are the risks, the advantages, disadvantages. Um, I think that that's what uh, our job would be, and then obviously uh, identifying when you can't ju- you can't give them advice because you wouldn't be acting both of the you know in the best interest of both of them. Yeah, it's a tricky one. It probably falls into some of the uh, the ethical stuff that uh, you're doing, Catherine. Um, what are your thoughts on on that that area? Yeah, the the couple dynamics as well. I think it's overlaid on um, goal exploration. So I can imagine, Patricia, that when you have that discussion with them that, okay, let's figure out your goals and the discussion is kind of one of them says, oh, well, we want to travel the world and the other one's like, travel. <laughs> I want to spend time with my grandkids <laughs> or, or whatever that looks like and there's just kind of, it's not necessarily uh, a stark conflict of interest, like the kind of um, relationship differences that could actually result in you not being able to serve the clients, but more just on the relational level of almost like a, a marriage counsellor in a way. Does, has that, does that kind of come up in some of your client meetings where you feel like you are the intermediary? intermediary oh, in a way yeah um it doesn't happen um to the majority of clients but i'd say it happens to 30 percent uh, of clients maybe um and um yeah it's around uh what are your goals or someone has a goal that they want to go traveling uh and you know for 30 dollars when they retire a big trip and then you review it again it's like oh no i don't want these and then she's like oh i want these and you know the other person doesn't want it um, and, um, and it's quite interesting because sometimes, especially if they've been clients for a while, they like, they'll sit there. I actually had this this week as well. They'll sit there and talk to each other and not talk to me for like sometimes five, 10 minutes. <laughs> and you just like, just watch. And it's quite interesting to see them work through it. And they're like, literally they're having like a mini fight in front of you. Um, and this client was like, oh, you never, you always got get your way. Oh, you know, okay. I'm not going to get it again. And like, they, you know, literally have this fight and it's quite uh, funny but eventually they'll work through it and then you can see the compromises you know he'll get these and then she will get that um so um it's quite interesting and then yeah again i i sort of jump in only to reaffirm you know what's what you know you can or you can't do this i know there's achievable not achievable or oh, this would be a significant change we have to check the impact versus not um so um, sometimes i find that yeah i am sometimes encouraging clients especially older clients to spend a little bit more or you know enjoy life a little bit more and remind them that they can if that's what they choose to do I love I love your stories, Patricia. It's uh, it really is another example of the the true value inside of uh, financial financial advice. Uh, just the clients having those conversations with themselves that they would never have at home. So it's it's brilliant. Uh, Catherine, Patricia, thank you so much for being part of this particular episode. We look forward to um, jumping back into the conversation with you guys when we start talking about goals based investing. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this is the first episode of FIRE that we're talking around investor behaviours and investments and decision making and a whole lot of fun topics. I'm, I'm joined by uh, Dan and David. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. Uh, Dan, I might start with you. We're talking about uh, the, the concept of uh, behavioural bias in investments decisions and obviously that can be, uh, could mean investors or, or investors uh, as in the, the consumer or the investment manager. Um, Dan, tell us about what your idea around some of the behavioural biases that affect uh, decision making. Yeah, I mean there's, there's some of the obvious ones that um, people are aware of, um, short termism, um, you know, uh, res- responding to fear and greed, um, anchoring, uh, which is essentially taking an arbitrary 
figure and then making a decision around that um, that short-termism component, you know, looking at what's happened in the recent past and assuming that that's what's going to occur into the future. Um, and one in particular that we have a fair bit of focus on is what's typically referred to as mental accounting, but it's probably easier to understand if it's referred to as bucketing where where people, you know, put different buckets and different pools of money into, you know, just mentally um, uh, so they can think about, it in a more structured fashion. Um, and some of these biases, yeah, we know that they can be value destructive, but our belief is that um, if an advisor is equipped and tooled and educated um, and they go into client meetings understanding um, some of these biases, that they don't necessarily have to be value destructive. They can be value accretive. Um, so if you don't mind me talking about one example of that, um, mental accounting is uh, one that I think is a perfect one where if, where it, it, the theory is that if you have a series of different portfolios that, you know, combined, it'll either end up looking like a balanced fund or it won't end up being an optimal portfolio. But the reality is an optimal portfolio can only ever be built in hindsight. It can't be built in foresight unless you had a perfect crystal ball. But if a client is able to, um, if you're able to uh, take advantage of that 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 bucketing approach and um, segregate their goals, prioritize their goals, and have a look at the different time horizons, you can then get a better assessment of the amount of risk, whether that be risk aversion or that you know risk tolerance, um, risk capacity, and potentially need. Um, you can you can help them um, construct. Uh, a portfolio that's more appropriate based on those series of goals. And on top of that, they then have a much greater understanding as to why they own the assets and the amount of risk that they're taking to achieve those particular outcomes, which is where I think it can actually be quite beneficial where you can take behavioral biases and work with them as opposed to just assuming they're the devil and you always need to try and overcome them over time. I'm glad I'm glad you said that because that was exactly where my mind went when you said that. It's kind of like a bias, but it's also something that helps them understand and the whole idea of informed consent and the understanding the information and be able to tell their friends at the barbecue as to why they're doing those certain things. Uh, thanks, thank you for that, uh, uh, David. When we when we talk about the different um, the different areas around you know behavioural bias and investing, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, it's such a fascinating area. Um, if you think about the academia of all this, you had sort of 50, 60, 80 years of rational market theory and all the academics saying, no, the world's rational, every decision's an informed decision and so forth. And then really over the last 30 to 40 years, you've had you know, behavioral um, insights coming into the fray. And it's sort of not that well known, but you know, academic literature in a way, pushed back from publishing most of these areas for a long, long time. And now it's sort of really opened up. So the last 10, 20 years, you've just seen a whole wave of research which brings rational and behavioural decision-making together and tries to explain a broader view of how decisions are made. So it's very fascinating. And you can see across so many different parts of um, the industry and the way decisions are made. So just to broaden it out a little bit, and you, you can rein me back in, Fraser, um, yeah, if you think about the way that saving systems are designed, so superannuation is really a big nudge and it's sort of compulsory saving. And if you left that choice to the individual, um, people would struggle to make that decision to save, you know, ten, put 10% of their savings aside. So that's a giant nudge. And that's sort of um, a common design um, which accounts for behavioural bias in terms of savings behaviours. If I bring it back to the investment management world, um, it's fascinating what you see um, in the institutional investment management world. So past career, I used to work in the hedge fund world and um, I've visited a number of funds you know, with amazing investors who have in-house psychologists who sit, who sit alongside a, a data expert and they'll actually be analysing every trade-by-trade trade decision that their portfolio managers are making to try and identify their particular behavioural biases. And some of the ones that Dan mentioned really come to the fore. And a couple here are um, sort of what you call disposition effects. And that is that people prefer to sell their win to, to sell their winners and hold their losers. So you get some mm. sort of an endorphin rush from realising a profit and you say, oh, you go home that day and say, well, I've locked in some good profits here. I feel good about myself. And then you um, 
hold your losers. You don't want to have to accept that you've made a loss on this position. And I've seen that. I've seen that amongst family decision making, and you see it in the institutional world as well. And so yeah, that's absolutely. why you have things. Yeah, you do, and that's why you have things like investment committees where someone comes in over the top and says, "Look, you just have to get out of this position. You're just denying the the obvious there that this company's just not going to recover." And um, so you sort of see that type of thing at the institutional levels. And then, of course, it can step down to um, you know, retail decision-making and, and really bring it back to what Dan's saying. There's this amazing value-add for advisors in terms of being able to work through some of these behavioural biases, perhaps give comfort to a client to work through them and put them aside, but also this ability, nearly a behavioural alpha, nearly at, at the advice level, to um, turn some of them into a positive step that that clients can take. Yeah, now you mentioned in that um, the, the concept of behavioural decision-making and, you know, logical decision-making as two separate things, which I found was yeah. really interesting, uh, especially in the, you know, obviously when we're talking to clients in, in consumer, it's very obvious that a lot of decisions are made emotionally uh, um, or behavioural, as we're going to call it. Um, but, yeah, it's really interesting to hear that conversation around, you know, in the investment committees and the investment management space and even in the hedge fund space that uh, the 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 behavioural stuff comes so much into it because you just you make this assumption, I guess, that it's all got to be based on rational decision making. What are your thoughts, Dan? Yeah, no, it, it's it's definitely not. And in fact, we I mean I don't want this to turn into any kind of product flog, but um, we've set up um, our investment committee and our investment processes to be as largely systematic as possible to try and overcome what we recognise as behavioural biases that we that we, we know will come to the fore. And just because you're conscious of them doesn't mean that you're not going to necessarily, you know, react to them or you're, you're, you're going to be able to ignore them. Um, and so having processes in place to, um, you know, uh, when you when you have loss makers, if the information has changed and the uh, the information you now have says that you know this this you, you know your original assumptions and your original inputs that you use to make that decision are no longer valid, it has to go. Um, and if you've got something that has done really well, and you know the the immediate um, uh, th- thought process may be, oh, we, we should we should book some profits. But if the underlying investment thesis and the the forecasting methodology, assuming you use one, um, is is still sound, in fact, could be improving, um, that you know you're in a position that you you need to you need to um, can you know say in there. Um, you know some examples of these are you know going into uh, COVID. Um, you know the, towards the end of March, um, you know we were we were very extremely nervous about what could occur. I mean, if everybody thinks back to the the end of March, I mean, no one had any idea what the pandemic could have meant, and the market had already fallen thirty percent. And it could, you know it was a, it was it was a very difficult time. I mean, thinking about second waves and how how what this could have in the economy and da 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 da. But we had processes in place that said. You have to buy, like you have to, like you just you you have to reinvest. And we we had divested prior to that, not because of the pandemic, but because of valuation issues. Um, those it was those it was that systematic approach to overriding the human decision making. I kind of described it as a compass. You know, it tells us north, south, east, and west, and and then the human element can come in and say, well, maybe you want to take a boat to get to this place instead of a plane or, you know, depending on the weather or you might want to go, you know, north by north east instead of, you know, just directly north. But at the end of the day, you still need that compass. Otherwise, you, your own human biases, your own emotions are going to have a huge effect over the portfolio decision making. And generally, in a value destructive fashion, unless you get lucky and, you know, sometimes people do get lucky and then they claim it as skill. I think that uh, past has shown us that there's been a huge amount of luck over over the past, and and people benefiting from it, and and, and making them putting their hand up and saying how great they've done. I wanted to quickly touch on the uh, the anchoring conversation too, because I think it's a really important one. Obviously, you know, the obvious is anchoring to past performance, uh, and a very easy one for people to to look at on or past fees or whatever it might be. And um, you know, there's plenty of benchmarks to anchor against. Talk, talk to us about uh, anchor. I might get uh, you to start with this one, Dave. Yeah, um, if I just jump back to, to what you were going through there, um, that was just fascinating, um, Dan. And I guess what you were pointing to was some um, 
systematic rules which are largely based on fundamentals and it's also quite common to see systematic rules just based on P&L so you hear terms like the classic stop loss it's really a behavioral control to stop people and pull them back in and say your P&Ls reach a certain level you have to go in and um, have a good think about this now so yeah these things are everywhere yeah anchoring is a very common one as well um, yeah fascinating little subtopic and in Australia, you do see anchoring on past performance is is, is one of the bigger issues. Uh, fees is one, um, but even portfolio managers themselves, they have a set of principles and and maybe even favourite companies. Um, you see examples of anchoring around CEOs that people quite like. So you also see a whole range of just little rules of thumbs. You may not even know them yourself, and that's, that's the value of having um, – just people come in occasionally and check out what you're doing or a good investment committee who are truly independent and just come from different perspectives to just challenge you a little bit, keep you fresh and, and, and make sure that you're wading through some of these sort of barriers. Yep. Dan, what are your thoughts around anchoring? Because I, I, I actually have this uh, idea around anchoring that it can actually mean you've got experience. Yeah, uh, as I was saying, um, anchoring and, and, and your point about it um, can mean experience. It, it absolutely can it can mean experience. Um, and if that experience allows you to make better decisions in the future, um, then then it, it can it could be a good thing. But quite often, um, you could be anchored to you know historical experience that is completely spurious when um, viewed in a future context because it, it may have no relevance whatsoever as to what could occur into the future. Um, you know, we've had 40 years of, you know, the great moderation. Um, if people anchor to that and assume that the next 40 years we're going to continue to have decreasing rates and increasing multiples, um, you know, there's a very high probability that the uh, the result in their portfolio could be could be fairly um, fairly mediocre. Um, but from an advisor's perspective, recognizing that clients will come in and and they will have previous experience and they will have um, things that they that they they anchor to and that they have their favourites because they may have worked it with worked for them in the past. Um, being able to be armed with knowledge to be able to um, explain to them why it may have worked in the past and why it, why it may or may not work in the future um, can help with those conversations because, you know, quite frequently people will look at, you know, property, for example, and say, you know, I did extremely well on property and property was fantastic. But if you 30 years ago, instead of buying a house um, in a major city, you bought, you were able to buy a 30-year Australian government bond, which you couldn't, um, and held it to maturity. Um, you would have you would have done better. Um, the majority there is the results that have come from the property market have been the fact that you've been able to leverage the living hell out of it over that period of time. It hasn't actually been because it's been a fantastic investment. Um, and so anchoring to that previous thing can can prevent the client from um, potentially um, taking on less less risk that they should not be taking on or don't need to take on to achieve their goals, but um, if you can go into the conversation recognizing that, that, that they have these biases in place, you can at least have an informed conversation instead of flying blind, um, is my belief. Yep, very good. Now, I wanted to um, bring up the conversation around uh, an, another sort of bias that a lot of clients start with, uh, and that is, um, you know, the, the the now, wanting things now, the short-termism, I think you called it uh, earlier, Dan. Um what what are your thoughts on this this behavioural bias around um, uh, you know wanting things now and only being able to think about now and struggling yeah. to think about the future? Yeah, the myopic um, view that people have, and, and it's true, and that's why you know that's why savings systems exist with compulsory savings because people can't uh, defer present enjoyment for for future outcomes. So that's a that's a very common one, and you know a good example is a savings system design I just mentioned, but. There's very practical examples. Some of the best behavioural experiments have been um, pre-order your lunch for a week's time. You'll, you'll order a salad in a week's time, but if you're there on the day ordering, you'll pick the hamburger. And um, yeah, and that's sort of very common as well. So there's all these examples, not just in finance, but all, all around everyday activities. You know, the way you defer exercise, you'll book it in for, I'll go for that jog tomorrow, everything like that. Everything is all about present enjoyment and so there's there's actually estimates of the factor the 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 
the time disp- disposition effect of um, all these things that you can factor into your models when you're um, designing portfolios and so forth. And yeah, that starts getting into pretty interesting areas as, as you're designing systems. So um, yeah, like um, regulators and policymakers, it's all pretty tricky. Should they allow for this or not? And probably might. It, it, it gets very exciting when you when you talk about the the tech space and some of the um, the modeling that that is coming out that is being made available to advisors. Um, where previously they've had to use linear models where, you know, they'll draw a chart up on a board and say, you know, this is what will happen on average, but the only thing I can tell you is that I know this is not what's going to happen. I mean, if there could be a more useless conversation in the entire advice industry, I have no idea what it is. But, you know, another, another form of um, short-termism is, you know, <laughs> academically known as hyperbolic time anchoring, which is exactly what um, um, David was talking about is, is – People don't like to put off things for tomorrow to, to deal with them today, but um, there, there are certain um, uh, uh, technological solutions that advisors can get access to that can help people to visualize what it actually means to put things off today and what that will actually generally mean for them in the future to try to have a behavioral visceral response which may lead to a more positive behavior, which is which is this whole idea of going into the conversation, being aware of the behavioral biases and having some tools to be able to do it. So they don't have to necessarily be a negative thing. You can turn them into a positive thing. Yeah, that's great. Um, some of the best examples I've seen of that, Dan, are um, technology-based solutions where um, to try and encourage encouraging people to save more is such a hard thing to do. And uh, so one technique I saw in an academic piece where they teamed up with a, some clever technology people was to take a photo of you as a starting point. And then when you were making that decision, they had create an aged photo of yourself so you could picture your future self and that actually led to people saying oh, I'm going to save more because I could picture myself in that situation more. Uh, another interesting uh, piece was when a couple of academics teamed up, I think it was a project with Microsoft or something where they tracked your savings behaviour and projected by looking up the classifieds for rental properties what house you're going to live in at the age of 65. And they sort of said, yep, if you tick this box on your savings rates, this is what your apartment's going to look like. And if you tick the alternative rate, you're going to be in a, you know, a pretty drabby apartment. And that sort of could really translate the present into the future. And it's those connections, which you can see how important it, are, it is for uh, advisors to be able to, to do that imagery and create that setting. And, and that's really the framing piece, which is crucial to breaking down some of the behavioural biases? Yeah, I think that imagery is really important. I think a lot of uh, advisors and planners do that very well now, um, bringing, bringing clients back you know, from the future, you mentioned projecting out to the future, but bringing your clients back from the future to now and, and trying things on, you know, the old, uh, you know, you've just woken up in the morning, are you having wheat picks or are you having a cooked breakfast? You know, that's the the uh, the options you uh, right now, but obviously you're talking about the future uh, of those things. So um, uh, lots to uh, lots to digest there. Now, uh, probably just one of the other things I wanted to touch base Um on this was around some of the different personalities, and obviously, you know, there's bias um, in couples. When we, uh, when you, when you, when people are dealing with clients, there's, there's often an alpha personality or non-alpha, or you know, uh, the CFO or the non-CFO in in the conversation. Uh, how how do you manage to? Uh, what are your thoughts, Dan, around bringing both those personalities into the conversation, and making sure that there's no bias from one over the other? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure I'm the most qualified to answer. I think I, I can provide suggestions that I've, I've gotten from some advisors that I believe do it quite well um, in that that they they have the meeting with the, the couples but then also have the meetings with the um, uh the, the, the partners in, in the um, the arrangement but have them individually then bring them back and show the difference between the two because when they're alone, they're far more likely to be able to express their personal opinion and without having to worry about what the other person thinks. Um, and I think that practice from, from, you know, just from my own personal experience, it just logically seems like it's a very, a very sensible way about going about doing it because it is, it, it is going to be very frequent. We know it is very frequent, um, in relationships. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be the, the male as the alpha. It could be the female as the, the alpha. It could be the, you know, the one male with another. Like it, it kind of doesn't matter. There's, there's someone who frequently defers to the other. But 
they may have certain fears and concerns about what's going on and they're not, they don't feel comfortable enough expressing them, separating them and allowing them to speak freely um, in, in, in a controlled environment so that then it can be brought back and, you know, they can meet face. Normally the, the, the alpha type personality will generally be, be oh, oh, okay. All right. Well, if that's how you feel, you know, we're, we're in a, we're in a partnership of some, you know, sort here, whether it's a business partnership or a relationship or whatever the case may be, we, we kind of need to meet um, somewhere where we're both happy. Um, and I think that is a, you know, it's a, it's a very simple, but very effective way of approaching it. It's a, I'm glad you raised the question. It's a really important one. It's something I was pondering on just as I was thinking about these podcasts. And um, if I just lift it up to a higher level, just to set my scene a little bit, which is just first of all, that rational piece and you know, the, the risk aversion is really where it's at. And that's the most common framing of language. But uh, it's also, um, there's this sort of other area that I think is important, which is what you call ambiguity aversion. And that is, you, know, you sort of have some sort of risk appetite, but yeah, are you prepared to take risks that you don't really understand? So, if, you know, I, you, know, you might know the stats that sit, sit around, you know, jumping out of a plane with a parachute, but there might be other sort of risk areas where you don't actually understand the odds and that may actually say, well, geez, I'm not prepared to take that risk because I don't really understand it. And then if you apply that back to, you know, finance, well, financial literacy levels are really low. And so teasing out the two, you might actually have some sort of risk aversion you know, around financial decision making, it actually may not, they may not be risk averse at all. They may, may not understand finance at all. And hence, it's quite rational not to want to take risks there. So there's sort of a little bit to unpack there. And, and this gets you back to that sort of um, household structure, which is really important. What Dan was saying, I sort of agree with him there. If I just apply that framing to the, to the alpha personality, and you think about the alpha characteristics, they're a leader, self-assured, powerful, sort of confident in everything they do. But that's also where the risk is because what happens if their financial literacy levels aren't that great, then they sort of feel like they have to make a confident, strong decision, yet they don't, they're not really um, set up to do that well. And so there's actually an alarm bell there for an advisor if they identify that sort of alpha characteristic, that they really have to filter that what do these people understand about financial decision-making in general? Otherwise, you get a strong response, put a plan together, think you're doing everything well, and you know, it may not turn out good at all. And um, so it's a really, really interesting area. Yeah, there are very so many very interesting areas uh, around this. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me in this particular episode. Uh, we look forward to jumping back into the conversation with you guys when we tackle goals-based investing in the next episode. Thank Cheers, you. Fraser.